When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 247. Today's episode is all about how to tap into the unconscious mind through ancient wisdom and fairy tales. I think it's important to recognize that the unconscious is both amazingly good and amazingly bad, but it's always somewhat repulsive the first time we come in contact to it. I think that it's a little bit uncomfortable for human beings to admit that we are in some ways spiritual, we are rational, we are intellectual, but we are also animal. And that's very, very uncomfortable. But in order to be whole, we have to accept the animal part of ourselves. And once we do that, a transformation takes place. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. I've got a little question for you to ruminate on. What if we could learn to recognize how our unconscious minds influence us so that it actually helps us become who we were meant to be? And what if the key to doing that isn't as much through modern science, but ancient legends and fairy tales? Sounds a little crazy, but think about it. If you're into holistic health, you probably know the power in the wisdom that our ancestors held. It seems like we're just now relearning all of these practices that were written off as snake oil a century ago. To me, it makes sense that this realm that we're living in is a complete creation, that we'd have everything we need to survive naturally, healing plants and a nutritious food chain, It seems like the more humans get involved with the natural way of things, the more we screw it all up. Like unintended consequences of progress that are pretty quickly destroying the world. And yeah, there are exceptions and miracles and some things are totally worth it. But overall, I don't know. I just have this deep pull to go back to simpler times. Grow my own food, live off the grid, spend time in nature and with my family. All the things that I was chasing before seem kind of like an illusion. Maybe it was the fact that they were living in alignment with nature that gave our ancestors the gift of intuition. Maybe since they didn't expect to rely on answers from Google, they had a greater capacity to find them within. What I do know is that they held a wisdom that was way ahead of their time. Or maybe that's condescending to say, or generationist. Is that a thing? Like, just because we're the most recent generation, we know better? Maybe it was exactly right for their time, 
And we've just lost it as we rely more on technology and science for answers that were never meant to be found there. Most of us grew up learning fairy tales. But the ones we inherited were all about needing a man's kiss to come back to life or to be able to speak and find our voices. If you were born 10 years later than me, you did get a little more empowerment there, so that's something, I guess. But the legends and fairy tales that our ancestors told were different. They held deep truths about life and the inner worlds of our psyches. And we connected so deeply to these stories because that's how stories affect humans. If you know anything at all about marketing, you know that it's all in the story. It's not the facts and the figures that sell people. People take action, like sharing on social media when a video or a meme moves them, whether it's laughter, anger, or love. And that emotion is evoked through the story that connects us. So knowing this, what wisdom do those ancient stories hold? If we look at them as more than just a fairy tale, but as something that carries truth about ourselves and the world we live in, what can we learn? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Daniel Lieberman. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University. He studied the great books at St. John's College and attended medical school at New York University. He's the co-author of the international bestseller, The Molecule of More, and now his newest book, Spellbound, Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the Unconscious Mind. So three key things we will learn are what the ordinary influences of the unconscious mind are, how to align the goals of the unconscious mind with the goals of the ego, and how the integration of science and myths lead to transcendence. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Daniel Lieberman to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So what inspired your recent work connecting really the magical with the science? This book is a book I've been thinking about for what seems like my entire life. I've always loved fairy tales and stories about magic. You know, at a young age, I kind of noticed that there was a lot of similarities among these stories. And as a kid, I suspected the reason was because these authors actually knew what true magic was, and I was a little bit disappointed they didn't reveal it. Later, of course, I realized that they were actually all drawing off of the same ancient traditions, which tend to be very similar to one another, even across cultures. Then I studied the great books in college, which is a lot of philosophy, and some of these themes cropped up there. But really, it all came together after I graduated college, and I happened to pick up a book by Carl Jung, and I was absolutely fascinated by what he had to say. I, I read as much of him as I possibly could, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I am fascinated by 
just ancient cultures in general, I live my life very holistically and I keep being mind blown on what these ancient civilizations knew that it's like we're rediscovering now. And so I can get into my like tinfoil hat side where I'm like, I feel like this is being purposely suppressed due to industries wanting to make money and all this stuff. But I have such this respect for ancient cultures that like understood the power of healing medicines and things like that. And so I've always sort of wondered, well, if they are so on point about these things that they really couldn't have known without or we believe now they couldn't have known without all of the scientific uh, tools that we have and and understanding that we have, how did they know this? Where did they receive this information? And so the amount of times that I've gone back and read Greek myths or uh, old spiritual texts, just because I'm like, okay, if they were so on point with this stuff, they, were they just wrong about this? And then we learned more? Like, that doesn't make much sense to me. So that bridging of what they knew versus they didn't, how do you interpret that now? Do you see that there was reality in the magic or was it just their understanding? Well, you know, this kind of thing has been suppressed for far longer than the big corporations have been around. I think it goes all the way back to the Enlightenment. Before the Enlightenment, in medieval Europe and other parts of the world, the magical traditions played a very central role. The Enlightenment came along, rational thinking, and it was a huge boon to mankind. And the development of technologies enabled us to live lives that we never could before. And so I think it's understandable that we became infatuated with rationality, with science, with technology, and that we threw away these older traditions as superstitions. But as you point out, they have an enormous amount of value. Now, I believe the reason why they are so on point is because they had so much time to develop their ideas. And, and essentially what happened is that it became very empirical. That is, they kept the things that worked and they threw away the things that did not work. And so over time, these stories, these myths, folklore, fairy tales, all that kind of thing became more and more of an accurate reflection of this unconscious part of our brain, uh, a part of our brain that is enormously influential, but it's hidden from sight. And it does have a kind of magic. I think it has a kind of magic that is both more powerful and less powerful than people tend to think of when they hear that word. Right. I love how you explain how it's basically this understanding of the unconscious mind, which we're still seeking to understand. We have only scratched the surface of what our brains are capable of. And our unconscious mind is such a huge part of what drives our behavior much more than our conscious minds. And I'm reminded of how just recently on an episode, I was talking about how we all think our struggles are so unique to us. And that's why some of us are ashamed of them or we keep them hidden. But one thing that I've learned from sharing my own struggles so openly and just being open to hearing what other people are going through is so often we're dealing with the exact same things. And if we just talk about it more, we'd be like, oh, so this is common. Oh, this is this might seem super dark and evil, like this part of me that I don't want to share with anybody, but we're all having these thoughts or these instincts or whatever it is. And that's what I kind of get out of potentially some of these 
more mythical understandings of it is they realize that too, that a lot of these drivers of our behavior, which they sort of attributed to something more spiritual or more mythical or magical, it's still just everyone dealing with the same struggles and this is how they visualize it. So I want to go back to basically break down all of this for a greater understanding. And one of the things you call our unconscious minds, the dark twin that follows us through life. Why do you visualize it that way? I visualize it as dark because it's hidden. We've all seen those pictures of the mind represented by an iceberg where the vast majority of it is under the surface. And that's how the human mind is. The vast majority of our processing power, I I think in the book I mentioned it's something like half a million to one. The unconscious mind does half a million times more processing at every moment than the conscious mind does. But we don't see it. And because we don't see it, I think that we don't appreciate it. We go through life thinking that we're in control of our thoughts and nothing could be farther from the truth. Yeah, I'm reminded of marketing. <laughs> and I kind of mentioned this before we got on this interview, but what I what kept coming up for me based on my own random tidbits of knowledge <laughs> in all of the areas is we can sell somebody something or try to with all of the logical things like, oh, it's got these specs, these features, this is why it's better than something else. But that's not actually why people buy. They buy based on the story you tell them, which is why so often you hear this founder of a supplement company and he tells his story about losing his health and all the doctors had no idea. And then he found this one solution from like an a tribe in Africa and he made <laughs> packaged it himself. And those are the things that get us or, or some big hardship you had with your child and how you overcame it. And then all of a sudden you want to buy that product. And when I do courses or coaching, one of the first steps I always do is that mind prepping where we really want to get down to the story. Like what is really behind this random goal? Otherwise your ego and your subconscious are not going to be aligned. You're going to find every reason to be distracted versus just kind of getting in touch with your own inner story so you can kind of access some of those drivers a little bit more, if that makes sense. Stories are so important to how we understand the world. Our brain thinks in stories. We make things into stories, the events going on around us, uh, so that we can understand them. Um, If we can't make a coherent story about what's happening, we say none of this makes any sense. We need to understand motivations. We need to understand who's the hero and who's the villain. Now, when we understand through stories, that is going to lead to certain errors because we are imposing a kind of structure on events that may not actually be present. And scientists have noticed this. They've noticed that we make these errors, and some have suggested that we kind of try to resist making uh, stories about events, but that actually turns out to be a very bad idea because even though we may avoid certain errors, we completely handicap ourselves in terms of our ability to understand the world. So if we're hearing on one side not to attach to these stories, but you see there's a benefit in finding these stories, is there a specific way to do it so you are avoiding some of the error but still gaining the benefits? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? 
And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. We're hearing on one side not to attach to these stories, but you see there's a benefit in finding these stories. Is there a specific way to do it so you are avoiding some of the error but still gaining the benefits? Well, let me give you an example from the book. I talk in the book about anthropomorphism. That means viewing, treating, understanding non-humans as if they were humans. And of course, we do that all the time with animals. Um, when our dog says something it shouldn't do, we say, oh, look at him. He, regret, he regrets. His tail is between his legs. Well, in fact, dogs don't have the neural circuitry to engage in regret. They're engaging in something else, but we naturally treat them as if they were humans. Now, that's perfectly okay when you're dealing with your dog, but if you are an animal researcher trying to uncover scientific truth, that becomes more of a problem. And so there have been some animal researchers who have called anthropomorphism the cardinal crime of the animal researcher. Now, there is this famous primate research uh, center in the United States called the Yerkes Primate Research Center, and they took this criticism to heart, and they said, all right, for the next two years, we are not going to use any anthropomorphic descriptions in our observations of these animals, and let's see what happens. Let's see if the quality of our science improves. And they were very surprised by what happened. Their notebooks full of descriptions, full of observations, made no sense at all. 
But when they allowed themselves to understand their objects of study in human terms, they were immediately able to identify individual animals and individual patterns of behavior that immediately became understandable. So where does that leave us? Well, I think that we have no choice. We have to let our brains function the way they evolved to function, but maybe we have to go back and check our work and say, all right, I know this kind of thinking is liable to certain kinds of errors. Let me go through it a second time, withholding the anthropomorphism, withholding the storytelling to see if I can identify errors I may have made. It's extra work. It's going through it twice, but I think that that's the only option we have. So the point of doing this is really for us to understand something complex that we're not fully grasping yet, which is what the ancients did. You said that Carl Jung had concluded that stories about earth spirits and sky gods and all the other creatures that make up the supernatural are just ways of describing behavior of neural circuits within the unconscious, which is just something that hit home for me so much. I was like, this is the bridge I needed to understand <laughs> what these, what all of these things have to do because they, they, the same stories tend to appear in different religions, different spiritual practices, different cultures all across the world. And most people don't know that because they're only in tune with the one they've gotten. Like, for example, my mother only studies the Bible. And so everything came right from the Bible and doesn't realize that so many of those stories were actually found thousands of years before. Then <laughs> almost the exact same words, sometimes the same names, the same mythologies within it. So one of the things that I feel like we do need to clarify when we're really understanding the magic is you talk about how magic now, what we think of as magic now, isn't necessarily accurate, an accurate depiction of how the ancients viewed magic. So what was the ancients' view of magic compared to our own? Well, you know, we may think that we are so much more enlightened than, let us say, the ancient Greeks 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, but we have the same brain that they did. And so we tend to tell the same stories that they did, uh, but we just pretend that we don't quite believe them. So for example, inspiration is kind of a magical thing. You know, I can sit down uh, and I can grind through a spreadsheet anytime I want. But in terms of coming up with a creative idea, I don't have any control over that. And the ancients viewed that as a gift from the gods. And today we sometimes use that same vocabulary. Um, artists, musicians, songwriters, they will often describe their muse. And they will talk about how they will go through a dry period of no creativity, and then they're blessed with this rush of creativity. Athletes in ancient Greece used to pray to Nike, the goddess of victory. Well, uh, why did they do that? The reason is that no matter how much they practice, they never knew if they were going to be on on any given day. No matter how good athletes are, sometimes they have terrible days where they drop the ball all the time. Other times they give inspired performances. Today, athletes don't pray to Nike, but athletes tend to be far more superstitious than other people. And so a lot of them will go through these rituals trying to create the magic that will lead to that sort of magical moment when everything they do turns out to be right. 
It reminds me of flow. When people get into flow and you hear it most often with musicians or athletes or writers, when they finally hit that sweet spot where they're not as consumed by the ego, they just reach this like bliss point where they're just enjoying their craft. And it does kind of feel like possession or like something has taken over you. And I've reflected a lot on my past. I was raised with a religion that I no longer really align with, but I am often seeking like, what was good about those experiences? Like, what did I gain from that? What can I still take without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Such a weird phrase. But, uh, and one of the things is so often because I can get very scientific or want to know the psychology of why I'm doing what I'm doing, when I get to the point of like, okay, I need to change this behavior. I get so analytical about it. Whereas 20 years ago, the people that I knew in at church would just be like, let go and let God. And it's like this kind of beautiful way of like accepting that you got to let go of the ego, but they have this story or a visual to go along with it that I think helps connect a little bit better. And like you were talking about with athletes and rituals, when I was studying NLP and hypnosis, one of the things I was learning is like you can actually do these physical things like to where you you then reenact it on your hand and that'll trigger you into a flow state or like set up an, a specific essential oil at the same time as like maybe doing a little ritual with your hand and then sitting in front of the same spot and that can trigger you into a flow state faster. And so I can see the value of really every single perspective from like the more religious or spiritual to the like the psychological and then like the scientific. I love that flow state so much and it's such a fascinating state. You know, one of the remarkable things about it is that when we're in the flow state, we tend to lose our sense of identity. We merge with the work and we lose a sense of time. We lose a sense of place. And I think that one of the things it points out is that, you know, psychologists use this term ego to um, refer to the person you are referring to when you use the word I, like I enjoyed that movie. Um, in common terms, ego has negative connotations, uh, like self-centered and narcissistic. But in, in psychology, it's just that person you mean when you say I. And we tend to think that the ego is everything inside of our heads. And the flow state shows us that's not true. The flow state is the ego sort of stepping down from its throne and saying, all right, there, there are other agents here. And I am going to work together with them and we're going to cooperate. I'm not going to be the dictator in the brain anymore. And the result is this wonderful state of productivity, creativity, and pleasure. I played piano until I was out of high school and like, well, I got scholarships for piano and then it kind of died off. I have a keyboard, but I don't, I haven't learned a ton of new songs. And sometimes I can sit down and perfectly play songs from my past. But because it's been a long time, I'll notice like, oh, I'm just playing this really well. And all of a sudden it's like my ego pops in and I start wondering, well, what's the next key? And the moment I actually think logically about what to do with my hands, I'll lose it all <laughs> because it's like deeper in there than just at the surface. And so how does the ego work compared to the unconscious? Why are we able to access these 
almost like magical processes, whether it's intuition or inspiration, can we learn to do it more on demand? Or is that just something we have to learn to work with in a specific way to tap into that? Well, you know, let's start with that first question. How does the ego work? So the ego is slow. It tends to be rational and it tends to have a pretty small bandwidth. And so our rational egos are very, very good at solving problems that require rational thinking, logic, and that don't have too many variables. Our ego uh, is deliberate. It, it thinks about things before it takes action. The unconscious is very different. The unconscious has enormous bandwidth. It thinks very, very rapidly, but its thinking is more impressionistic. And so it often is not going to do well when a very precise answer is needed. And it's helpful to know when we should be using our rational ego and when we should kind of let go and trust to the power of our unconscious mind. And um, playing the piano is one example. You know, the unconscious mind is closer to the body. I often think of it as instinct. And so things that closely involve the body usually do better with the unconscious. So think about catching a baseball. If you think about moving your arm to get your glove in the right position, that's not going to work very well. And you might get hit in the face with the ball. But if you don't think about how you're supposed to move and just look at the ball and let your body take care of itself, then you're probably going to have no trouble at all catching it. That's the unconscious. When we say, let your body do the work, we're really saying, have the, un have the conscious mind take a step back and allow the unconscious to do its thing. With musicians, it's really interesting. We know which parts of the brain are largely involved in ego function and all the rest is unconscious. And when you have amateur beginning musicians who are just learning how to play, it's all conscious ego. They're thinking, all right, I press this key and this key and the beat and this and that. And that's rough. It's exhausting. And it doesn't work very well. After they practice, um, the unconscious mind learns through experience, through repetition. After they practice for maybe a few months, maybe a few years, their unconscious mind picks it up and the ego turns off and they can just play without thinking about it. Now, if they do that for years and years and they become an expert, the conscious mind comes back online and the two of them cooperate. The unconscious mind is taking care of the technical bits, how to move the fingers, etc., and the conscious mind is interpreting the creative intention of the composer. And it's when the two work together that you really get the magic starting to happen. That was a great explanation of it because I think that's where I ended with piano where the unconscious mind can still take over, but I don't think I got to the point where you know, I could just freestyle play when somebody else is playing, stuff like that, which I think is when those two things combined. But I'm reminded of a book by Austin Kleon called Steal Like an Artist. And he basically lays out what you just said about how when you're doing art, any type of art, the first step is just repetition and like copying what other people are doing, learning the steps and and doing that over and over again until then you start to be able to have the freedom to adapt, like instead of just copying Picasso's art, then all of a sudden you start getting inspiration on how to make it your own. And that's really what most 
artists do is they don't start from complete scratch. You know, you start with a canvas and like some technique and then you start to adapt your own style. And that's when mastery really occurs is when you find a style that is uniquely your own, but it builds off of other things. So thinking about that with how the unconscious mind and the conscious mind play together, that's the point I feel like I reach when I'm speaking a lot of times. Uh, I will, it's like I can feel in my mind, the conscious mind's still there. Like somebody asks a question and I'm responding, I'm on a stage or something like that. And and it's like I almost get like bullet points in a timeline of like these things and then I just let the rest go. And if I think about it too much, it won't come out quite as eloquently. But if I'm only focused on those bullet points and let like my unconscious mind take control, all of a sudden I'll be saying things and I'm like, am I really saying this? (laughs) Yeah. And it feels so good. And I've had the same experience and you get such a connection with the audience when you do that. One of the things the unconscious is responsible for is connecting with other people. We can't say to ourselves, all right, uh, what are the words I need to say? What are the facial expressions I need to put on in order to come across as authentic and make a genuine connection? If you let your ego do that, if you let your conscious mind do that, people can immediately tell that you're being fake and phony. It's got to be the unconscious mind that does it, and you've got to be able to let go. One of the things, though, that's frustrating about it is just about how much time it takes. I mean, how many talks did you have to give before your unconscious mind was ready to help you out in that way? For me, it was probably at least 50. And especially in our modern age, people can be kind of impatient. They they want to no, just tell me what I have to do. You know, just tell me how to jump to the finish line. Uh, what's the takeaway? What's the advice? And they don't want to accept the fact that the unconscious mind works differently. It requires practice. It requires repetition. As I mentioned, the unconscious mind is really more representation of the animal side of human beings. And training your unconscious mind is a lot like training an animal. It requires an enormous amount of patience and repetition. You know how they have all those services lately of synopses for books where it's like, oh, well, here's, there's like five of them now, optimize something else. And and you can go in Blinkist and you get like a 15 minute synopsis of a book. And I was like, what a great way to learn more. But I realized that all of that backstory in a book is so necessary for it to really be instilled into my memory. (laughs) And it's exactly what we're talking about, where it's like, yeah, you can give me all the bullet points, but they don't mean anything. And my subconscious mind's not going to really absorb them until you taught me. You also tell me how you got there, why it's important, the consequences of not knowing this information, all of the things with the personal stories on every other page. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is important and I'm changing my life around this material. Yeah, I think that those those synopses often have a lot of the conclusions, but they don't have space to include the stories. And it's the stories that really make you uh, integrate that information into your way of thinking. Well, you also talk about the shadow and how we all have this, this shadow. What is the shadow and what happens if we refuse to accept our own shadow? 
Jung spoke about two levels of the unconscious. The deepest level he called the collective unconscious. And that is circuit structures in the brain that we all share in common. He said, you know, just as human beings all have two eyes, one nose, one mouth, two arms, etc., we all share a similar psychological anatomy as well. And that explains why we see the same themes, the same stories cropping up in disparate cultures. Now, also a personal unconscious as well, though. And the personal unconscious consists of things that were once conscious, but that the ego rejected and pushed away and refused to accept, refused to acknowledge. These are aspects of ourselves that we don't want to believe that we have. Things like perhaps our aggression, our hatred, our sadism, our selfishness, all of these things. And when you push them out of consciousness, they go down into the unconscious and they form what Jung called the shadow. And it's not such a great strategy because when it's in the unconscious, we lose the ability to control it. And so we may have the peace of mind thinking, oh, these things are not part of my true personality. But people who know us know otherwise. And they popping out uncontrollably at times in ways that are not always in our best interest. And we can definitely more easily recognize them in other people. <laughs> yes, it's that's funny. right. And I find I am most triggered by other people when they're doing the exact same thing that my shadow does, but I refuse to look at it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when I find myself becoming particularly annoyed with someone, I say, okay, what is it about me that's just like that person? <laughs> so we have learned how the unconscious mind works, that it d drives most of our behavior and the power of story to really access it. But what are some of the more ordinary influences of the unconscious mind if we don't learn how to harness this kind of magical power of it? Well, I think that the two different issues, you know, the ability to recognize it and the ability to work with it. Just in terms of, of recognizing its ordinary influences, I think that the most, one of the most dramatic and pervasive is desire and values. If you think about the things that you want, the things that you expand your life energy pursuing, you didn't choose those things. Those things are kind of handed to you. And sometimes we don't like our desires. Sometimes our desires are inconvenient, expensive, maybe even self-destructive. And we may wish we didn't have those desires, but we can't change it because it comes from our unconscious. Sometimes we are attracted to people who are just so absolutely wrong for us and pursuing them absolutely destroys our life. We can't stop it though. So people who don't want to admit that their lives are guided by their unconscious, all they have to do is look at their desires. So somebody may have this passion for teaching and they may say to themselves, you know, teaching is a wonderful profession, but it doesn't pay very much. I think we find a passion for business. Tough luck. There's nothing they can do. That comes from the unconscious. And so I think it's fair to say that as much as we may think the ego is in control, in many ways, the ego is just along for the ride. 
And it's the unconscious that determines the core of our lives. And that happens to me all the time. Like, I feel like I'm a very self-aware person. But I remember when I was first, I did this goal-setting project, basically, uh, about a year before I launched Mind Love. And it had me do all of this back work that I was just like, why do I need to uh, write down why this is important to me and my first memory of this and all of this stuff? But also, at that time, I had a pretty deeply held belief that maybe I was the kind of person that couldn't finish anything. Like, my ADD was too bad, I'd stop in the middle of something. Well, actually, doing this work was one of the first times since, like, college (laughs) that I was able to fully complete something, and I'm still going with it. You know, I still have this podcast, it's still very important to me. And it's funny, because about a year or two into Mind Love, I was trying to get something else off the ground, and I just couldn't seem to do it. I was like, I would, I finished the biggest part of it, but then when it came to launching, I couldn't really do it or I would always be distracted. And then I was just beating myself up and all the old stories came back. And I thought, well, I have to go back and do all that work to like connect why this is so important to me, why this matters more than just, otherwise it's just my, why it matters to my ego. Oh, this will like make me a chunk of money. (laughs) That's not why I wanted to do it though. It actually comes, it can go down like seven layers of why that's more important. Like it's not just about the money. It's about, well, also starting a family and building this and and going here and helping people. And and so I know that when I have something big that I want to do, I have to do that work to connect my ego's desires with my unconscious mind so that I can actually continue to follow through. And so I'm curious, though, with your research and all of these kind of mythical and magical stories of the ancients, what is a well-known story that has that kind of magical help or an example of that that we can share? I just think it's worth pointing out the difference between having that magical help and not having it. If you imagine working on a project at work, writing a report, something like that, when you're doing it just because you have to, uh, because if you don't, you'll fail the class or your boss will be angry with you compared to working on something that you are passionate about. It's absolutely night and day. If you're doing it just because the ego has determined it's necessary, it is such a grind. And you look for any excuse to do something else, right? You'll go and clean the bathroom toilet rather than work on that damn report. But if you're passionate about something, then you can't wait to get up in the morning and get at it. And and time flies by and the quality of the work is absolutely outstanding. And so that, that unconscious cooperation or magical help is truly one of the most valuable things in life. There's lots of fairy tales that tell stories about animal helpers. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, it's helpful to conceive of the unconscious as the animal part of the psyche. And heroes who are kind to animals and get their help become capable of superhuman things. The the animals make them travel uh, faster than the wind, or the animals defeat their enemies for them, or, or create a magical island. And so I think it is the fairy tales that give us uh, the best stories about the incredibly dramatic ways that our animal nature, our unconscious, can cooperate with us and allow us to perform at levels we never imagined possible. 
And you know, how many times in your life have you done something and then looked back on it and, and said, oh my God, how did I do that? I could never, ever do something like that again. And that's true when I refers to the ego. We've done a lot of things that the ego is completely incapable of doing on its own. And we just got lucky that our magical helpers came to our assistant. So what is one of the examples that really stands out to you of one of these fairy tales that somehow combines maybe one of the common desires or drives or struggles that we deal with? Well, I think that the fairy tale that I started with the book is um, The Frog Prince. And I think that most people are familiar with that. Disney did an adaptation. It's about a princess who is playing with her golden ball and she accidentally drops it deep into a well. Wells are often symbols of the unconscious in fairy tales. And a frog offers to rescue it for her. And the frog in this story, I believe, represents a certain aspect of the unconscious. One of the things this fairy tale emphasizes over and over again is just how ugly and disgusting the frog is. And I think that that's important to keep in mind. We, we've been talking about all of the wonderful aspects of the unconscious, how it can help us in incredible ways. We've touched briefly on how it can harm us. For example, when we become obsessed with someone who is very bad for us, um, the shadow, how it can lead to hatred and horrible things like that. And, and I think it's important to recognize that the unconscious is both amazingly good and amazingly bad. But it's always somewhat repulsive the first time we come in contact to it. I think that it's a little bit uncomfortable for human beings to admit that we are in some ways spiritual, we are rational, we are intellectual, but we are also animal. And that's very, very uncomfortable. But in order to be whole, we have to accept the animal part of ourselves. And once we do that, a transformation takes place. When the princess, the princess resisted, resisted having a relationship with this frog, but when she finally gave in, it was transformed into a prince. And that's what happens with our unconscious as well. Um, there are aspects of it that are ugly, that are repulsive. We want to turn away, deny that it's there. But if we can work towards a place of acceptance, the transformation will take place. I love that story. I always, it takes a, a little deeper look because I was always like, oh, you just shouldn't, you, you got to look deeper than surface level. You know, your soulmate might be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but this makes so much more sense. So now that we understand really the importance of the stories and the fairy tales and also how they can blend well or complement science rather than basically oppose it. You talk about how integrating the science and the myths lead to transcendence. What does that mean and how can we use that in our daily lives? When we think of transcendence, we usually think of sages or gurus or very, very special people. But there's a whole body of research that looks at transcendence in just ordinary people. 
and they've developed scales that measure it. And what they realized is that transcendence tends to increase as we age. And it's not all or nothing. It's not like one day, poof, you achieve enlightenment and everything is different. Qualities of transcendence are present in all people. And little by little, for people who experience successful aging, it gradually increases. So what are some qualities of transcendence? Well, one is being comfortable with who you are, both your strengths and your weaknesses, not trying to present yourself in a different way. I was looking at your podcast, and I think that you had um, the author of a book called Humble on not too long ago. I did, yes. And I think that that is one very important aspect of transcendence. Modern society really encourages us to, I don't know if put our best foot forward is the right word, but, but to really emphasize our good qualities and hide our bad qualities. On our social media, um, we've got the best pictures uh, anyone's ever taken of us. We've got our wonderful vacations. We have our beautiful children. Everything that's good, and we rest. We hide the bad parts. And people who view social media too much get really depressed because it looks like everybody's lives is better than their own. But even the people with these wonderful social media pages are not doing themselves any favors because they're not living an authentic life. So one element of transcendence is being able to embrace and feel comfortable with all aspects of yourself. Another element is when you move away from a strict focus on the ego, thinking about what's best for you and allow the unconscious to have more of a say in the matter. The unconscious tends to focus more on relationships and the well-being of the group over the individual. And so transcendent people tend to take a lot of pleasure in helping others. Sometimes they take more pleasure in seeing good things happen to other people than they do for themselves. One of the things I love to do more than anything else is to teach. And the older I get, the more I take joy in passing on knowledge rather than acquiring the knowledge myself. A third aspect of transcendence is moving away from a focus on material possessions and thinking more about immaterial things, things like love and beauty and meaning and values. And these are all things uh, that happen as we undergo successful aging, and they represent a gradual partnership growing between the ego and the unconscious. That's such a good tip. And something about I don't know. You know when you have a realization or suddenly visualize something a little bit differently than <laughs> you ever have before, even if it's knowledge that you knew? When you're talking about just focusing on that love or the connection or more value-based things, I'm used to doing goals in that way where I'm like, okay, well, what value does this connect me to? Why is this so important? But one of the things that I've struggled with, yeah, I'm definitely the social media scrolling and then like comparing and it's like, oh, maybe now we need a bigger house. And this summer I had this moment where we were traveling for the summer. I was 
pregnant and nauseous, did, basically just did not feel good. It was like the worst month <laughs> of my adult life and came back and all of a sudden I was so grateful to be in my house and I'm still kind of riding that high where I'm like, what complaints did I have about it here? I've got plenty of space. There's all my stuff. It's beautiful. But I definitely still deal with like, I buy too many things on Amazon and, and whatever. And, and I just had this way of visualizing it all of a sudden while you were speaking of like, really picturing like, did I invest in love today? Did I invest in connection today? And we just had a bunch of people over for dinner. And you know, when you do something like that, the day before, I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, this is so much stress, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And then right afterwards though, uh, well, that morning, I somehow ended up in a weird flow state of cleaning and cooking and whatever. And I I had a good time. (laughs) It didn't even stress me out that morning. But afterwards, I was just on this high for like two days of, that was amazing. We need to do that more. I don't care what it costs buying all the food and whatever, like this is worth it. And so to really think about investing in those things rather than like, oh, this is the whole shopping list I need to make my house perfect or to make my wardrobe what I want it to be. Like, how did you invest in those, in those values that, that mean a lot to you? And I, I really love living, leaving my listeners with something to focus on for the week. Uh, that they picked up from this episode. So if you were to leave listeners with one thing to really focus on, to instill some of the things we learned today, what would that be? I think it would be to cultivate an observing ego. Realize that there are other agents going on inside of your head that are having a profound influence over your life. And I, I think that the best thing you can do is just try to recognize them. Pay attention to your moods. Pay attention to spontaneous thoughts that come up into your mind. Pay attention to times when you get this incredible high and you feel great the way you did after that dinner party and just try to become more familiar with it. I think an important goal in life is establishing friendly relationships with the unconscious. And anytime you want to make a friend, the first step is always getting to know that person as well as you possibly can. When I was healing from my eating disorder years ago, I actually remember viewing it as like this little demon was really helpful for me because it allowed me to detach enough that I wasn't quite beating myself up so often when the behaviors would occur. And so that's one of the biggest struggles when you're trying to overcome an addiction or something that you just don't like about yourself or something that's technically ruining your life, but you're attached to in some weird way. I just remember I would go through these cycles of like, okay, no, I got this today. And then I wouldn't. And then I'd just be like, I'm a failure. I can never do this. And then I'm just instilling those things into the subconscious mind even more. But when I started to speak out loud to it and actually be like, there's the demon again. It took me this time, but it's not tomorrow or it's not today or whatever it was. It just uh, kind of aided in I really think it was more of the relationship with myself and still being able to see myself as some someone that I loved and was powerful without all of that negative feedback. Such a great example. You know, for thousands and thousands of years, humanity has been viewing those kinds of demons that can possess us. These days, we view them as brain circuits. And yes, that's a more accurate way of viewing it, it's not as psychologically helpful. To say, oh, my brain circuits are causing problems for me doesn't give anything for us to grip the way saying this is my demon. 
And so I think that modern people may feel a little bit embarrassed saying, oh, yeah, uh, there's this demon inside of me that I have to fight. But in fact, the way the brain is wired, that's a more effective way of visualizing the problem than in purely scientific terms. Well, we have so much to work with today. I said earlier that this was one of those books that I just got sucked into and I loved every moment of it. So thank you for the work that you put into this topic. And for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, connecting with you and your book, where's the best place for them to find you online? They can check out my website at danielzlieberman.com. All of the links for this episode are at mindlove.com slash 247. Your challenge for this week is to get curious about your own unconscious mind. Notice some of your behaviors that you don't feel like you have full control over. Maybe it's something big like an addictive tendency, whether it's a substance or biting your nails. Maybe it's an emotional impulse. Maybe it's this weird energy between you and someone else you have a relationship with. But ask yourself, what stories are driving this behavior? This doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fix the whole thing, but just get curious. That's the first step toward any change. And usually, in my belief, always, there is always a story driving that behavior. And ask yourself questions without expectation. Sometimes I ask myself a question and it's like I see the whole vision right in front of me. Like, why did I not see this so clearly before? All I had to do was sit in stillness and ask. And sometimes nothing comes up at all. Sometimes it's something that I'm asking myself for weeks or even months before an answer becomes clear to me. And I think it just depends how deeply rooted into the unconscious that this story actually is. Sometimes it's just waiting to be released and sometimes you have to dig a little deeper. Or maybe the universe is just waiting for the perfect time. But regardless, like I said, the first step is getting curious about your situation. A few questions to get you started that I like to ask myself are, when did this behavior start? What am I feeling when I engage in this behavior? Do any visuals come up for me? When was the first time that I felt this way? And maybe you'll get an answer to one of the questions and it'll spawn an idea for another question. But just keep asking until you get a little bit deeper than you had before. This might be an ongoing process, or like I said, it might supply some revelations almost immediately. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa, or leave a comment on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 247. If you'd love to support this show, the best way to do that is by joining Mindlove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only for premium members. Plus, you get to listen ad-free and sometimes early release. And you also get bonus meditations. So you can sign up for that right at mindlove.com slash premium. Other ways to support the show are by supporting one of my amazing sponsors. I absolutely love them all. Or you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 